you turn to First Chronicles chapter twenty nine. First Chronicles twenty nine. So, uh, if you've got First Chronicles twenty nine, I'm going to read from verse ten to thirteen. Therefore, David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. The God of Abraham praise. Now we're going to turn to Isaiah uh, 44. The 44th chapter of Isaiah. We'll read from verse 6 through to verse 11. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God, and who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Those who make an image, all of them are useless and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, so we gather before you this Wednesday evening with our Bibles open before us. We ask, as always, for the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. We pray the Holy Spirit would speak to us, speak to our hearts. Pray for ourselves. That you would grant us the grace to hear and indeed understand all that we'll be considering tonight. Help us to believe and to obey and indeed to walk in the pathway of your choosing. Help us to walk worthy 
of our calling and we ask that you would accomplish your purposes in us. We uh, pray for any who are unable to be with us tonight. As always, Lord, you know their circumstances and we commit and commend them into your hands. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. 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 Well, Jude, verse 25, to God our Saviour, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Or as the ESV translates, verse 25 of Jude, to the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Or the NIV. To the only God our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Well friends, last time, which was two weeks ago, we concluded with the amazing picture, this uh, astounding notion of, a, of the singing God from uh, Zechariah, Zephaniah uh, 3.17. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will Rejoice over you with singing. Now, we know the verse from Isaiah 51, verse 11. If you're not familiar with the verse, you will no doubt have sung the little chorus based on the verse. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. The redeemed of the Lord shall come. And... uh, with singing on the Sion. An everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow. And mourning shall flee away. And we understand, don't we beloved? We understand, yes. There will come a day. When all the longings of our hearts. Are more than met. And we will be filled with joy. And singing. On that great day. But the realization. That God saves. Not simply for his glory. But also for his. Gladness. Is quite staggering. Sort of went out on a limb. uh, The little time as we drew. uh, The last time as we drew. To a close. Um, You know the. The. uh, you know, I'm not sure if you picked it up, you know, so we were drawing to a conclusion and I said, or I asked you to think about, asked you to think about it, the, the joy, the joy of the man, Christ Jesus in glory, when he sees the travail of his soul, you know, multitudes from every nation, language, tongue, etc., you know, gathered, gathered in, and the joy of the man Christ Jesus having having seen the travail of his soul. Now we know again from Isaiah 53 verse 11. He shall see the labor of his soul. The travail of his soul. And be satisfied. And we think of Jesus hanging on the cross. 
seeing the uh, reward of his labor as he bears the sin of his people, purchasing our redemption. And in the context, obviously, of Isaiah 53, I've no doubt that that's correct. It's uh, based on Calvary, but I carried it beyond Calvary to glory. And, uh, you know, Jesus in glory, rejoicing at the, uh, the elect being gathered in. Now, here's another out on a limb statement, this time, I think, somewhat further out on the limb. And it comes from J.I. Packer in Knowing God. Now, I threw this out to you on Sunday evening, asking you to think about it. Where Packer says in Knowing God, he says, God's happiness will not be complete till all his beloved ones are saved to sin no more. Now, the simple fact is that God was supremely happy before he made the world. God didn't need the world or ourselves in order to be happy. If he had never have created the world, he would still have been supremely happy. And yet, Packer suggests that God's happiness by his own determination is somehow wrapped up in the salvation of his people. Any comments? Did you think about it or did you think no? Any, any comments or we could just pass on if you want. Okay. <laughs> you have to both believe God is always the ever blessed God and never has any regrets or failed ambitions or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you have to always believe also that He He doesn't change, but according to circumstances, we don't we don't change. If something happens that changes we don't necessarily change, do we? Our emotions, and I'm talking about us, might change, but only because the circumstances have changed. It's not that we have changed. Mm-hmm. And we can't understand God who knows everything from eternity anyway, but it's, you have to also hold that side that, that He achieves things and is satisfied with what He's achieved. He's made creation, said it's very good. You know, it's, it's a mystery, isn't it? But I don't know how you resolve it. But I think you can't let go of the blessedness of God. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that's, that's a fair point, John. And I think uh, for those of you who do get Evangelical Times, there were a couple of excellent, excellent articles uh, last month and then again this month on the impossibility of God. You know, does God have emotions? Uh, which you know, were really interesting. Um, but it was Packer's comment that God will not be happy until... I, I, I guess sometimes in order to force... Or to express something, we say things that perhaps um, when you sit down and analyze it too much, you know, messes with your head. Um, but I think part of the answer maybe can be found in Romans chapter 8, you know, verse 30, where it talks about whom he justified 
these he also glorified and in its future. That's all it is. And so it's like it's a done deal in eternity. We are glorified. God is rejoicing that he's lacked or gathered in. That none will be, none will be lost. Um, and so in that context of our glorification already having been achieved. You know God is supremely happy. Um, so, yeah, yeah that's just one of the ways I've been trying to sort of reason it. But, but we'll move on. And uh, Sorry if you got something to say. Go ahead Rosie sorry. That's right. Can he be angry and happy? That's a good point. Now, I think um, remember what it says in Revelation about you know uh, hell will still exist, and uh, God. They they are suffering eternal punishment in the presence of the Lamb, as it says in Revelation. You know, so God, God's anger um, is still being you know poured out. Upon the the lost in hell. Any other comments, like Paul? I don't actually agree with the statement because you don't agree with Packer's statement. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's saying God won't be happy. Mm -hmm. God is happy. Yeah. He has a. He will make something come to pass, and he'll be happy when that comes to pass. He's already happy anyway. Yeah. Because um, it implies God's not happy. Mm-hmm. Which is not true. Yep. There's degrees of happiness, aren't there? And they could be happy, and then when they all come safely home, they might be more happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's what Packer's driving at. But I think that's, yeah, he's making a statement that, you know, there's no real answer to, is it? You know, God, in the eternity of his being, is. Perfectly happy. So that statement is humanistic. Yeah, it is. Yeah, he's looking at it from we a human perspective. Are not happy until we accomplish something yeah. If we want to. But that's not the same thing, is it? Nope. So I don't know. I don't really agree with the statement. Yeah. It takes a lot of battle to disagree with J.I. Packer. Only Jack, only Chuckman. So yeah, don't want any any other comments now about We'll move on. Okay. Well, um, let us remember, let us recognize that what Jude is doing at the end of his letter. Jude's ending his letter by turning the gaze of his readers to the living God, uh, turning them to God, the God with whom he began his letter. And he ends his letter by confronting them with the greatness of God. Uh, God's glory, God's majesty, God's dominion, God's authority. Now, we know, um, not I hope among ourselves, but we, we know that there are those in society at large and 
We'd even find them in so-called churches. But there are those who say, I don't see how a consideration of God would ever enable me to tackle the issues of life or, you know, to fix my problems. You know, you think about all of the issues in our lives that need to be addressed from illness to conflict among the nations to financial concerns to death that suddenly comes crashing into the life. Uh, And someone might think, well, surely those are really the issues, the nitty gritty issues that need to be addressed. And some might even be as bold as to suggest that such a, a focus on God can be very uh, impractical, if not actually irrelevant. Um, so um, I'm going to make I made that statement just simply to say I'm going to delay the concluding of Jude in order to take up that imagined challenge. Imagined, obviously, in the sense that I don't imagine for one minute that we find that type of argument among ourselves, but I've no doubt that it's very real in the world that you that you live in, in the world that you're interacting with, um, where a lot of people in your work or wherever um, would see God as irrelevant. And just as an aside, if you think about this, you know, present church generation, you know, over the past 40 years, perhaps uh, a little longer, uh, so a little over a generation, over those years there have been countless books printed on the practicalities of living a Christian life, whether they are the practicalities of finance or marriage or employment or singleness or whatever it might be. There are books, conferences, sermons, retreats that are abounding uh, with all the kind of information that we feel we desperately require. And yet, why is it that seemingly across the board faith is so feeble? Why is it that worship, the worship of the God of Abraham whom we praise, why is it so flabby, so shallow, so worldly? And I feel the answer is because of the absence of a consideration of and a belief in and a submission to the God to whom Jude directs us in these final verses. You know, Spurgeon was only 21 when he addressed the congregation at the Metropolitan Metropolitan Tabernacle. And he said these amazing words, Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your curse? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. I urge upon you, he says, to fight musings upon the subject of God. That's a lovely little phrase, isn't it? The fight musings upon the subject of God. But then somebody could say, well, hold on. That was way back in 18, well, that would have been 18. 55. This is 2023, so much has changed. Of course, obviously. Materially, yes. Technologically, yes. Uh, but has so much really changed? 
here we are stumbling our way toward the first quarter of the 21st century, discovering that our world has indeed become a strange, mad, painful and disappointing place without God. You know, when God is silent, our world is a mess. So knowing God, knowing God is the most absolutely crucial, important thing in the living out of our lives. But part of the problem with that lies in the fact that we're actually tempted to conceive of God in a way that suits us. You know, for example, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is left in Athens. He, he moves around and he, he sees what's going on. He's eventually, you know, given the opportunity to speak. And where does he be- begin? He begins with God. That's where he begins. And that's what he says, God. You know, he says to the Athenians, you've got all of these ideas and all of these notions about deity. You have all kinds of idols. You've even got one there to the unknown God. So he says, let me start there. God who made the world and everything in it. That's his starting point. In other words, what he's saying to the people of Athens is you think you can encapsulate God. You you, you think you can sort of um, solidify him in a little place. You can't. God is so completely above us. To God, our Savior, or as ESV NIV, the only God our Savior. Now, the creeds and the catechisms obviously help us with this. They ask the question, what or who is God? And the answer usually comes back, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite and unchangeable in his power and perfection, in his goodness and glory, in his wisdom, justice, truth, Mercy, love, etc. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. You see, the real problem, beloved, is that we've got... Well, man has got huge ideas uh, about himself and tiny ideas about God. He is the only God to the only God. Like Jude has referred to him as the only God and our Lord Jesus Christ back in verse 4. That's the, the story of the Bible, isn't it? There is only one true and living God. Among many of the, uh, the Psalms, the, uh, the Psalmist's uh, word you know, makes it perfectly clear. You know, for example, Psalm 88 verses uh, 8 and 10. Among the among the, the gods, there is none like you. You know, the, the works of man's hands, yeah, they don't compare with the God of the heavens. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And despite the fact that Jewish people, 
recited that and still recite it today if they are Orthodox Jews. They recite it on a daily basis. Uh, As the story of the Bible unfolds, we discover that the prophets have to say to the people who, who are saying daily, or saying, they're repeating that daily, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the prophets have, have to remind them, they're saying to them, you have succumbed to the notion of engaging with substitute gods. You know, how come that's happening? Because certain men crept in. Creeps crept in. They had looked around at the nations. They were seeing what the pagan nations were up to with all their shrines and their drama and all the things that were going on. And they thought, boy, that's a good idea. Why don't we incorporate that into our worship? And so there's a real challenge to the people of God. And you know, to declare that God is the only God, to reinforce that. That's why we read from Isaiah. And Isaiah is saying, why are you turning to other nations and the, and the gods of other nations, and why are you copying them? Why, why are you, you know, imagining something in your own mind and then molding it into a God, and then you're falling down before it? What he says, we had to read right through the chapter. And oddly, what they were doing was to say they were imagining that it was possible to make from things that are less than human something which is more than human, in the hope of finding in that some power that they needed to help them navigate their lives. It's an amazing stupidity, isn't it? They were looking inside themselves and coming up with an idea, fashion it, carry it around with them, or put it on the mantelpiece, fall down before it, and it's insanity. Now, for the moment, obviously, we're just just sitting on the phrase, to God our Saviour. To God our Saviour, or to our only God and Saviour. Because in a world of idols... We need to keep focused on our only God and Saviour. In a book entitled Culture and Death, uh, The Death of God, uh, a guy called Terry Eagleton lists several idols of this modern age. Enlightenment rationalists, that takes us back to the 18th century. Enlightenment rationalists, he said, Made a God out of reason. That's basically the Enlightenment. Uh, we have grown up, he says, we have, the Enlightenment says, we have grown up, we have grown beyond God. We have discovered that we know more than anybody else ever knew before us. And since we have lived later than the people who lived before us, therefore, we must know more. Therefore, we must be brighter. We have come out of age. We are enlightened We don't need God. That was the Enlightenment. We're living in the post-Enlightenment. And what is it saying? It's saying make your own deduction. Be whatever you want to be. You know, the Romantics deified imagination. 
If you can conceive of it, run with it. If you can imagine it, go with it. Nationalists, then and now, exalt the nation, worshipping the nation. Marx has offered an extensive analysis of sin and salvation, seeing it in political and economic financial terms. And in all of that, what you discover as you review things is this. When God is rejected, something else or someone else has to be concocted to replace him. See, friends, the fact of the matter is that the environment in which we live is an, env- an, an environment in which the truth about the God of the Bible is not only rejected, but it's disappearing fast in the Western world. Now, it is emerging in other parts of the world, in the global south as it's known, in the southern hemisphere and sub Saharan Africa, um, you know, where, where families and people and congregations are turning to live in the living God. And they're finding the God of Abraham and they're praising him. They're, they're finding the answer to all of their, you know, idol worship and animism and to all the uh, witchcraft and shamanism and all the stuff. You know, that had bedeviled their lives. And now the, these folks are, are turning and they look to the West who sent missionaries out to these places. And they're looking and they're saying, what on earth's going on? You know, we have jettisoned all of this. We have turned our backs on all of this nonsense. And people in the West are embracing it. And they're opening up shops that selling all of this stuff that bedeviled us. You know, and made our life in misery. Why are they doing this? They're doing it because the West has dethroned God. The West has removed God from the equation. No longer believe in the only God, our Savior. They no longer believe that he is the only saviour, they have succumbed to all of the nonsense. Because you see, when God has rejected something else or someone else has to be, conco- has to be concocted to replace him. Or if God is still around for them, he isn't much of a God. That's what they think. Either there is no God or there's not much of a God. Now, just one more quote and we're finished. David Wells writing in God in the Wasteland, the reality of truth in a world of fading dreams. This is what he says, quote, It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. Interesting comment, isn't it? It's one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. He has become unimportant he rests upon the world so inconsequently as to not even be noticeable those who assure the pollsters their belief in God's existence I listen to this bit he goes on to say those who assure the pollsters 
of their belief in God's existence may nevertheless consider him less interesting than television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. His truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. This, says Wells, is witlessness. Now, beloved, that's why it's so important that when we, that when we call the people of God to worship on Sunday, at the very start of our services, we do so conscious that our grasp of things by God's goodness enables us to understand why it is that we come and we worship a God who is almighty. A God who is great. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Come, says the psalmist. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. We come as creatures to worship the creator God. That's some figment of the imagination, but one who has revealed himself to us in his precious word. One who is not weightless, but one who is almighty. We come as subjects to honor the king. We come as sinners in need of a saviour. That's, that's how we come. That's why we want to tell the story of Jesus. That's why we want to broadcast it abroad. Because we need the story of Jesus. He's the saviour. This world needs the story of Jesus, doesn't it? As we see things you know, uh, imploding in the Middle East. And everything that can happen. And we'll be praying about it. You know, We want to pray that... The, the people of God in those areas will, will be used of God to be a light in the darkness. That's why we want to tell the story of Jesus to the children. That's why we organize holiday Bible clubs, why there's going to be a choir for a Christmas outreach. These are things that we will be, be praying about because we believe that our God is in control of all things, that he is the only God, our Savior, and is the only one worth praising.